Chariots doing good? Good. You look good. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 8. Song of Solomon chapter 8. This is, um, we've got two more weeks of this series. I've had a blast teaching it, um, and uh, we're going to dig in here this morning. Um, today's sermon is really like a continuation of last week's sermon. Last week uh, was about maturing in, in, your, in your relationship, and, and that love was not created to grow old or cold or stale because God is love, and God doesn't grow old or cold or stale. And so if you love one another in the covenant of marriage, um, you've got two options. You can grow old in love, and that's my hope and my desire. I hope we're, you know, sharing teeth at the dining room one day and just, you know, holding hands and making out and making young people uncomfortable. That's my goal in life. It's my old married people. So you old married people, you're my heroes, okay? We want to be like you. Uh, or, or your love can grow old. And, but So it's really up to you. And so t- today what we're going to talk about is till death do us part. And you'll see where that comes from. And again, it's just a continuation of last week. And so we're going to pick it up quickly here in chapter 8, verse 1. She starts off this way. She says to him, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. All right, so this didn't mean that they're from Kentucky. All right, what it means is this. She said, If I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. So what she's saying is in this uh, cultural context here in the, in the um, ancient Near East, it was, it was um, unacceptable for any public displays of affection with your spouse. So you couldn't kiss your spouse in public, you couldn't hold their hand, you couldn't hug them, you couldn't do that kind of thing. But it was totally acceptable for family members to like walk around and hold hands or hug and kiss and that kind of thing. And so what she's saying is, I wish I could make out with you in public. That's what she's saying. And um, if you've ever been to the Middle East or even parts of Africa, it's still that way today. Like husbands and wives are not allowed to show public displays of affection and, and in fact, if you hold your wife's hand in public in some places that we go in Africa, they'll smack your hand and say, don't do that. But in Africa, it's crazy. Even men will hold hands with men. And so you wait till you go to Uganda with me and you're just minding your business and walking down the road and some grown African man comes up and just holds your hand and you're like, ah, I feel real uncomfortable. <laughs> all right, Scooter, that ain't how I do, okay? So I find myself just walking around like this all over the continent. So here's, here she's saying... I wish you're my brother so that I could just show the world publicly. I could, I could make out with you in public. That's what she wants to do. Verse 2, I, here's what she would do. I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house. And she who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink. Sorry, Baptist, but, you know, it's in the Bible. All right. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. I can't even tell you what that means. If you want to know what it means, go home this afternoon, slice a pomegranate in half, hold it up, squeeze it, and just go, dear God. That's what she's talking about, all right? It's crazy, isn't it? This is about the time people are like, what kind of translation? I'm telling you, you people may need to be reading your Bibles. All right, here we go. She wants to give her, give him her pomegranate. Verse 3. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. She's saying, I wish that we could be this intimate right now. There's no more intimate position than just in this full embrace. And that's what she wants. But again, they said, you know, she said earlier that they're outside. And so he's going to respond in a way that he's responding now four times. And he's going to say these words. I adjure you, old daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And you think, yeah, but I thought... I thought it was time now because they're married. Now, this, this statement makes a lot of sense before they're married because they're saying, oh, not yet, love is patient, love is patient, not yet, not yet. But now that we're married, what's the problem? Well, the problem is they're outside. This is Hebrew for get a room. That's what that means. <laughs> and so one of the things, though, that you're going to see, even after they're married, especially after they're married, is that sex continues to be the dessert and not the appetizer. 
that even in your marriage, that sex is the follow through of this deep abiding love that you have for one another. And, and it's not the appetizer. And then she goes, or her friends step in and they say this in verse 5. I love this. They, they say about her, who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? In other words, as long as she has been married to him, they've been married for a while now, and their love is growing and maturing and their relationship is deepening. And her friends say about her, man, this girl has transformed so much on the arm of her beloved, we don't even recognize who she is. I remember all the way back to chapter 1 where she was just a, a peasant girl working in the vineyard, and now she is a queen. I mean, she has changed so much that, that we hardly even recognize her. Do you guys realize that your marriage should be a transforming agent in your life? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible says that the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband is a sanctifying agent. Sanctification just means to become more and more and more like Jesus. And the longer that you're married, you by what God does in you through your spouse and what God does to your spouse through you is that you should be more and more sanctified, more and more like Jesus, that, that marriage is the left lane of sanctification. I mean, I was in my disciple group this week, and uh, most of the guys in the group now are married when we started a couple years ago. They weren't. Most of them have gotten married by this point. And, and one of the things we realized is, wow, I didn't know how selfish I was until I got married. I mean, I thought I was pretty awesome. And then you got married and you go, wait a minute. You mean the whole world doesn't revolve around me? What was the problem sleeping the corner to corner in my bed every night? You mean I got to like pick a side and try to stay on it? Or um, I didn't realize what a slob I was until I met Gretchen. I was hygienic at best, you know. And now I've learned that, you know, you're supposed to pick up your underwear and put it in the basket. For me, it was a... I used to just think it was an inventory issue for me because if I had four on the floor, I had eight in the drawer, and I always knew, like, exactly where I was. And I tried. I'd do the little toe thing, but if I missed, then I just left it there for later. And I realized that that's not as good. Um, also, I know y'all aren't going to believe it. Well, I've become much more responsible. Gretchen's helped me do that, especially, like, with little people. You know what I mean? I remember early on, we had kids, and she would just leave the house with just me and them, and I would think, you know, we had to go through classes to get them here, but you don't go through any classes on how not to ruin them once they are here. You know that? And I would feel totally, totally, uh, I was just scared, pretty much scared. Um, I've become more empathetic. I know you don't see it much, but I, I mean, you should have seen me before marriage, right? I, I've learned that feelings matter. It's a lot of, a lot of things. And a, and a big part of it is I understand that our, our marriage should be transforming in my life, and I hope and I pray the same thing is true for my wife. You know, one of my goals in life is that when we're celebrating our 50th or 60th wedding anniversary, how many years God gives us on this earth, that she would be able to look back at our marriage and think one of the smartest things I ever did was marry that dude because of who I am now. You see, when, when God created Adam and he placed him in the garden, even before sin, that men had a job. And his job was to subdue and cultivate. And so one of the things that Adam was supposed to do, he was a farmer or he was a cultivator. And what a farmer or a cultivator does is they take the raw materials that God has provided and they rearrange them for human flourishing. That's what I want to do in my house. See, I want to create the kind of environment in my home where my wife, Gretchen, can become the best version of who God intended her to be. 
And that a big part of my role is creating that kind of environment. And one of the things I'm most proud of in her, um, she, she was leading worship today in the sanctuary. And about every other week, she's one of our worship leaders in here. And you guys see her, and you see her lead worship, and you hear her sing, and, and it really is amazing. But what you don't know is that 16 years ago when we were dating, um, I took her to this youth camp. All right, it was this big Baptist youth camp, thousands of high school kids, and we took our youth group there, and she went with me. And, and I remember the first night we go into this huge worship auditorium that, quite honestly, looked exactly like this. So all we do at 1122 is what I did with teenagers 15 years ago. That's all we do. And so, I mean, it was all hazy, and it was like a Coldplay concert. I don't even know if Coldplay was invented 15 years ago, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but it was like that, you know, and, and this, this worship band from LSU was up there, and they were singing, and, and same kind of songs, right? And, and kids, teenagers all over the place at this camp, they were raising their hands, they were singing loud, and they were passionate, and they were crying, and I mean, you know, it was, it was a lot of emotion involved in, in worship. And I remember at one point, and that's how I sing too, I'm a hands up, you know, that, that's, that's how I am. And I look over at Gretchen, and she is like, uh, what is going on here? You see, because she grew up in this little traditional church that her granddad planted, and her mom was the organist. And so in her church, in her tradition, when you would show up to church, you would just call out the hymn, play 288, and they'd be like, and then everybody would sing it. And it was great. I mean, it was really great, really awesome, authentic worship. But if you raised your hand there, they would stop and be like, do you have a question here on the third row? You know? It wasn't like that. You didn't raise your hand. And so, and then this place, it's like that kind of worship. And after that worship experience, Gretchen goes, something's wrong here. I mean, either something's wrong with me, because that's not how I know the Lord, or something's wrong with them. I was waiting for the snakes to come out and, you know, <laughs> banners and what is going on here. And I know that that's how some of you feel here, don't you? I know that you do. That's why you get here during the third song. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you walk in and you think, what is going on here? It's kind of hazy and crazy and people got their hands up and whoo baby that's crazy and it is crazy but let me tell you why it's crazy that's crazy people like me with their hands up in the air there's a lot of reasons you know one of the reasons we do this is because the bible says to lift your hands in the sanctuary and you go that's why i'm in the worship center not the sanctuary so i don't have to no no, no same thing <laughs> wherever you're singing songs to jesus the bible says to do that okay also um just the way God's wired us, when you get excited about stuff, you do this, like, you know, this is touchdown, and I love you, Jesus. Same move. When your team scores, you worship, all right? Also, when I get home in the afternoons and my kids run up to me, they say, hold me, Daddy, like that. That's a part of what worship is. You're just, like, reaching out to God. Uh, one of the reasons you raise your hands, some of you know this really well, is when you surrender. You got me. And that's what you're saying to the Lord, like, you got me. All right. Sometimes you raise your hand when you know the answer, and we're singing, we know the answer. There's a lot of that going on, all right? So just relax a little bit and raise your hands more. But as I'm having this conversation with Gretchen, she's like, oh, no, 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 that's 16 years ago. And then you fast forward uh, till about, I don't know, five or six years ago, and, and Pastor Ben comes on the scene, and we're going to start 1122, the service at Beach UMC, and we hire Pastor Ben to come in and put together a band and all of that. And I lean into Gretchen and say, I think you should try out for the band. And she says, I don't think I should try out for the band. Now, here's what I know about my wife. I know her heart. She, she genuinely and purely loves the Lord. At this point in her life, she is like a hands-up, passionate, worship, front-row kind of singer. 
Um, and, and I'm telling her, I think you have what it takes to be one of our worship leaders. And she's saying, no. Uh-uh. And a lot of it was fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. She does not like the spotlight being on her. She doesn't like being up front. One time she legitimately asked Ben and I, do you think it would be okay if I sang my songs from behind the curtain? I'm like, no, it's just, no, you can't do that, okay? And so she doesn't like spotlights. She doesn't like stories about her. She has not loved this series a lot. <laughs> Particularly my confession last week towards the end. <laughs> Maybe too far. And then, and then here's where all the fear came up and, and all the insecurity. And she came in, she would say, I, look, first of all, I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I don't have what it takes. My heart's not pure enough to be a worship leader. And then the enemy really started chattering in her ear. And then she said, and even if, even if I try out, the only reason they'll let me, it's not because of me, but because of who you are. And man, I had to push hard. I had to go, babe, you're, you're going to try out. I mean, you're going to try out. And, and, and Ben is mean. So he's really mellowed out a lot in the past few years. When he first showed up to get 1122 going with me, people would try out and he would just crush them. He would say, um, in Leviticus, only the best of the best of the best got to lead in worship and you're not the best. And also, uh, your voice is like an instrument and your instrument is out of tune. Bye. So when people would try out for the band, we needed like the counseling department and the worship team together. <laughs> So, so I told her, I was like, well, here's what we got working for us. Ben won't give you a pass just because of me. Just go try. If, you don't, if you're not good enough, he'll just hurt your feelings and you'll be back here. be fine. Now, I'm telling you, she pushed hard against me. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about a cultivator. Is that like once a year, if you're going to farm or cultivate or plant anything, you know what you have to do. You have to till up the soil. And that's not pleasant. I mean, to take that hardened surface and turn it upside down so the rich soil that is down there gets up here so stuff will grow, it, it, it's painful and it's a lot of work and it requires heavy machinery. And so there were some conversations five or six years ago that if you were to step into my house, you would think, oh, that wasn't very loving, Joby. But actually, it was very loving because it was true, because she does have what it takes, and she does have a heart of worship, and she does have the talent. And we all see that on this end. But on that end, what I was doing was tilling up the soil. Husbands, do you realize don't be scared of your wife? And I'm serious. I know sometimes you're like, oh, I know I should say this, but I don't want to screw up my whole weekend. Sometimes you got to just screw up the weekend and crank up the tiller. And with the Word of God and some tenderness and a tiller, kind of till up some of the lies that they've been told. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, though. But you don't till it up every week. If you till up the garden every week, nothing can ever grow. You till it like once a year, and then the rest of the year, it's just tender loving care. It's just uh, fertilizer and water and sunlight, and that's what you do. And then, and then you got to sit back and you got to wait and be really patient and let God bring the rain and let God bring the sunshine and let God grow what God has put in there. And so today, today, we all as a church, and actually iTunes and whoever else downloads our music, um, we all get to experience part of the fruitfulness of 16 years of cultivating in what God is doing in my wife. And again, I can take no credit for it at all except that God uses me as a sanctifying agent in her life. Husbands, your job, your job, I mean, like, number one on your W-2 at home says, cultivate an environment for my bride to be the best version of who God intended her to be. 
that part of your job is at some point in eternity past, God had a dream that was the person that is your wife and your job is to help God's dream come true. That's what you're supposed to do. And so that means that you're her biggest cheerleader, her biggest cheerleader. So whatever she gets into, guess what? You're her biggest fan. And you're like, yeah, but that costs money. Right. And she changes her mind all the time. <laughs> I know. But whatever it is, you get behind it, you support it, you want her looking back at you going, the smartest thing I ever did was marry that dude. Because he has leveraged everything he has for the betterment of me. And if you think about it in like in cultivating terms, you want to create the, create the kind of environment where she can blossom into who God has created her to be. And that's what this is about. When they say, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? They don't even recognize her. And then she says, under the apple tree, I awakened you. Now, the apple tree in Hebrew, it, was, it meant two things. It was for provision and protection, provision and protection, provision and protection. It's the same thing Ephesians mean when it says that husbands should love their wives as you love your own body. You take care of it and you feed it. You take care of it and you feed it. Provision and protection. So the provision was the apple. Provision was the apple that you provide for your wife. Listen to this, husbands. Do you know that um, Paul tells Timothy in the New Testament that the husband that won't take care of his family is worse than the unbeliever? I don't even know what that means. There's like hell, and then there's worse than hell for those people, okay? That's crazy. And so, and especially in our culture, right, we got some guys that want to get married, but, but they're like, i got to find myself. You need to find a job first <laughs> so that you can provide for your family. And then it also means protection, that she will sit under the shade of your protection. That means when my wife is with me, I take care of her. She doesn't have to worry about anything. That she should always feel safe and secure in your presence. Not only should she say, feel safe with you, but she needs to feel safe from you. That means you don't raise your voice to her. You don't flex. You don't like a bear. No. You don't punch the steering wheel and make the car home go off. You don't do that stuff. It's inexcusable. It's inexcusable. And if you've ever done that, like I've done that, then you repent, you confess, and you repent to your wife. I am so sorry. Because you want her to be able to sit under the shade of your apple tree. It also means that if my wife is with me, dude, nobody, ain't nobody going to cuss her. Nobody's going to bump her. Nobody's going to degrade her. Not on my watch. And again, some of you little wimpy guys, you need to get a concealed weapon permit or carry a stick or do a push-up or hire a bodyguard. Something. Whatever you got to do, get on it. All right? Get a Taekwondo lesson or something. So that you, she knows that she is under your provision and protection. That's what the apple tree is about. So she says, under the apple tree, I awaken you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. What she's saying is, she's saying, I believe that when you were born, God intended you to be mine. So it leads to the question that I get asked often. How do I know if he or she is the one? Hey, you're gonna to, you want to write this down. Ready? Here's how you know if she's the one. Ready? If you married her, she is the one. Period. That's it. If you married her, she is the one. If you're like, she don't feel like the one out now, well, just review your marital covenant, okay? I promise you, in God's sovereign grace, when I stood at an altar and I made a covenant till death do us part with my wife, then she is the one I'll bank my salvation on it. That God in eternity past, being sovereign and knowing all things, that when I married Gretchen, it sealed the reality that she is the one for me. She goes on. Verse 6. 
Now she's going to talk about the permanence of marriage. This is really the crux of the whole sermon here. Verse 6. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm. She's talking about the permanence of marriage. You guys have seen those, those movies, right? Like, you know, medieval times where they write a scroll and they roll it up and they drip a little wax on it and they take that seal and they, and they send, send it to the king. And what's on that seal was like the family crest. Like for me, a big, big M. Here are the Martins. And so what she is saying is she's saying, I wish I could get one of those little seals with our name on it because I took your name because two have become one and it's, it's, we're, now we're one flesh, we're one house, we're one name for one lifetime. And if I had one of those seals, I would seal it on my heart saying that my heart is forever yours. She's talking about the permanent, permanence of marriage. And not just internally, but also externally. It's not just an inside thing in my heart. It's also an external thing that I want to be like a seal on your arm. Let me tell you what, girls. One of your jobs as a wife is to make your husband feel like the man. And one of the ways that you can make him feel like the man, every guy in here, it doesn't matter. If you go up to him as a seal on his arm, if you walk up to him and you reach your hand around and you put your hand on his bicep or where the bicep ought to be, (laughs) and you just kind of lean in right there, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what shape that brother is in. All right, he might not have worked out since the... Reagan administration, but now he's going to go, and he's going to flex, and you ought to give it a little like, whoo, hurry, Lee's, man, what you been doing, baby? He might just sit by a computer 99 hours a week, it don't matter, there's going to be something that wells up in him, makes him feel like the man, and that's what she is saying here, she's like, not only are you on my heart, but as I am on your arm, I am proud to be there, she goes on to say, for love is as strong as death, what does that mean? Literally in Hebrew, the word in the ESV that gets translated death is sheol. For love is as strong as sheol. It's another word for hell. So she says, our love is as strong as hell. Now some of you are thinking, now we're starting to talk about my marriage. All right, so that's not what it means. What it means is this, is that it's permanent. That hell does not give up its dead. Hell does not have like a work release program. If you die without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you go to hell forever and ever and ever and ever. Never to get out. It's forever. And she's saying our love is forever like the grave is forever. There's not a return policy. That it's till death do us part. That our only option is to stay married. For love is as strong as death. So when everybody in here who, who got married at some point in your marriage ceremony, um, the pastor or whoever officiated your wedding, he said something to the effect of, do you take her or do you take him? to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold, forsaking all others, cleaving only unto him till death do us part. And if you were to answer, like hell, it'd be a very biblical answer. Okay? That's what it means. Now, you can't say that because Nana's going to pass out on the front row. But like, oh, we fall over. But we lost Nana. Wake Nana. All right. But that's what it means. That, that just like hell does not give back its people, then they're saying that our love is that strong. It is permanent. It is permanent. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So when you get married, are you supposed to be jealous? Yes. Now here's the key. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is not jealous. Then 1 John 4 says God is love. And then the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. So how can those three things be true? Well, it's very simple. That you're not supposed to be jealous of your spouse. Wives, when you call your husband... And you hear fun on the other end of the phone. You're not supposed to get jealous. Well, fine, and y'all just play golf all day. I guess I'll be here slaving with the kids and cleaning. No, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to go. All right? That you're supposed to be 
jealous for them, not of them. If something good happens to your wife, you're not jealous of. Like, God is not jealous of us. He didn't see you get in your car and go, hmm, I wish I had one of those. No. You can have whatever he wants. He, he doesn't need anything from us, but he is jealous for us. That means he wants what's best for us. And so God knows that the best thing for us is to worship him and him alone because in him and him alone can we find fullness of life. And if we move away from him and move towards anything else, not only are we defaming his name, but we're actually cheating ourselves. And in the same way, in my marriage, I know the best thing for Gretchen is to stay faithful to me because we have a covenant together under the authority of God. And so that means I don't share. I don't share. And so when you get married, that's the kind of jealousy that you have. You, you do whatever it takes to protect the sanctity and the fidelity of your marriage. Verse 7, just keeps going. It says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Here's something you've got to know, that the enemy is going to want to wipe your marriage out, period. Going to want to. I mean, think about this. If you were the enemy and you wanted to defeat what God was doing through his bride, the church, what would you do? You try to take out the point guy, and he's doing a pretty good job with that, right? All over the country, all the time. There's, there's some pastor that, that is disqualified, loses his moral authority. And wouldn't you try to just take out the families that make up the church? And how's he doing there? The divorce rate in Duval County right now is over 75%. So when you get married, let me just tell you, your battle is not against flesh and blood. That the enemy is going to try to put out that spark or that flame that God put in there. And so what she's saying is essentially, look, the enemy can do whatever he thinks he wants to do, but many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. And if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know what that means? Because you can't buy love. You can't buy love. If somebody came to me and said, hey, I'll give you $5 for your wife, I'd laugh. If he said, I'll give you $5 million, I'd punch him in the neck. Like, Get out of my face. I utterly despise you. Who do you think you are? You can't buy what I have. It's not for sale. You can't buy it. You have to cultivate it. This is 14 years of marriage and a couple years of dating before that. So this is 14 years of cultivation that I get to live and, and breathe and be blessed with the fruit of what God has blessed us with. You know, one of the things that I do sometimes, it's really mean. I probably shouldn't do it, but it just seems to be effective. People come to me for marriage counseling. Don't come to me for marriage counseling, okay? I'm not nice. Pastor Ryan Stone is really nice. He will listen to you. He'll give you a hug at the end. It's really tender, all right? You think just because I can teach the Bible to you in a group that I'm really good one-on-one. It is not true, all right, at all. And so there have been multiple rich men with horrible marriages sitting in front of me. And then they are usually on their second or third lap around the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Remember that? Like... You think stuff equals happiness? Ooh, stuff didn't equal happiness. I know more stuff will equal more happiness than just round and round you go. All right, the carousel of just, meh. And so I sit eyeball to eyeball with these people and think, and I just ask them in a real moment of compassion from my part. I say, hey, listen, does it just drive you crazy? What? That um, you make more in a week than I make in a year, and you are strangely jealous of what I have? Because you can't buy what I have, man. You can't buy what I have. And so I've been mutually submitted to my wife out of reverence for Christ. And that's why we have a strong marriage. And I know you're on the third one. And every time you try to trade in and, you know, you lost half on the trade in and try to get a newer model. And it ain't working, is it? 
And that sweet car you drove up in here, man, somehow my Ford smells better when I get in it, doesn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Crazy. And that's what, that's what she's saying here, that if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Like, this, you can't buy it. You can't buy it. It's got to be cultivated over time. And so here's the point. The point is faithfulness and fidelity are not simply the goal for your marriage. So again, verse 6 is true, that our marriage or our love is as strong as death. It's permanent, it's forever, it's till death do us part. And if that's true, then faithfulness and fidelity are not simply the goal for your marriage, but the foundation on which your marriage is built. And those are two different things. Till death do us part is not just something you're trying to survive until you get to one day. Till, till death do us part is the very foundation on which your marriage is built. Because love grows best in an environment of safety and security. And when I know that I know that I know that when me and Gretchen stood in that altar and she said that she does and I say I do, then we do till death do us part. Then that becomes the very foundation that we build our marriage on. Because it's in that environment that I can be most vulnerable and transparent. And love drives out fear. And that as iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. And she can come to me and say, hey, here's some areas in your life that are not God-glorifying. And I know you don't see them, but I do. Because nobody knows you like I do. And nobody loves you like I do. And I don't have to be intimidated by that. But I can actually have ears to hear because I know that it's me and her till death do us part. And that is the foundation. It's not just a goal. You see, faithfulness and fidelity has to be the very foundation on which you stand. You see, the reason that I am faithful to Gretchen, there are, there are primary motivations and there are secondary motivations. The number one overall primary motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what our marriage is rooted in. We're, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I'll just tell you, if you don't know Jesus, I don't know how to tell you to be married. I'm not saying you can't be. You just don't talk to me about it because I don't know. If you don't know Jesus and you are married, step one for me is to lead you to Jesus. Now we can really get going on what it means to love her like Christ loved the church and submit to him as unto the Lord. So first and foremost is the gospel. And, and just our relationship, the primary motivation for me to stay faithful to my wife is because I love her. And as an expression of that love, I would never want to do anything that hurts her. And so, so my expression of that is my faithfulness to Gretchen. Now there are some secondary motivations that are true and that are real and that, that are that are right, but you can't build a marriage on it. You won't, it won't sustain you. For instance, here, here's a few secondary motivations for me to, to stay with Gretchen. One, quite honestly, at my age, I don't think I could do better. I mean, really, have you seen her? Look at her, look at me. Most of us would go, you probably want to hold on to that hoss, all right? That's why you should get married really young, because they don't know what they're getting into. All right, so that's one. Two, it would crush my kids. Oh, my gosh, it would crush my kids. Three, if I was unfaithful to Gretchen, I think I'd have to get another job. That's true. But it can't be a motivation for faithfulness. I can't be walking down the beach and see a beautiful woman and go, man, but where would I work? It just, it's not enough. <laughs> and that's why faithfulness and fidelity are not simply the goal of your marriage it's the very foundation on which your marriage is built that's why that's why a few weeks ago i talked about the wedding day remember and uh and i told you that you know make sure you don't spend all your time effort and energy on the wedding but spend time on the marriage because it lasts a lot longer than the wedding and so our wedding 
was horrible. I don't know if you hear that week. Gretchen threw up. Uh, we had to cut the wedding super short. We didn't even say vows. We just did the question of intent. I do, I do. All right, don't puke, go. It was super quick. Um, uh, the, the reception afterwards was not that awesome. We, in fact, we had to do two receptions. We had a pre-wedding reception and a post-wedding reception because we, because we had to move the, the wedding back a little bit because Gretchen wasn't, you know, she still wasn't well enough to walk the aisle yet. I mean, it was just a train wreck. Um, and in fact, like our pictures were all cruddy because Gretchen didn't feel good. So in all of our pictures, she's sitting down. We're, so we, it, we look like we're in the 1800s. Like we're all just sitting and there's like our family people around us. And it's terrible. It was awful. And then, and then our reception, like, there was no cutting of the cake. The smell of the cake made her feel sick. No dancing. Part of the reason, though, is because it was at a Baptist church. And, you know, dancing is a sin. It's right there in the word, dancing. See, I told you, can't do that. And there was no spice wine either because of the Baptist thing. So it was just, it was no good. Well, so great marriage, but terrible wedding. And so on our five-year anniversary, I, I was like, oh, I have an idea. And so I told Gretchen, all right, hey, babe, I'm... I'm busy on Saturday. Our, our five-year anniversary was on a Saturday. I, I said, I got a bunch of church stuff to do, so I can't do something that day. So why don't we go out the night before? We'll go out on Friday night. It'll be awesome. She's, like, she's cool with that kind of stuff. She's like, great, as long as we celebrate. And so we get in the car, and I've got reservations, and, I, and we're heading there. And I say, hey, real quick, I've got to run by the church. And automatically, that sends out like the crappy husband signal, right? Because it's kind of the story of every day I've got to run by the church to do something. And if you're on staff at a church, you won't understand this. But there is this time continuum vortex that you can't just run in and out of a church. It's an hour and a half. You go in, an hour and a half elapses, no matter what. And so she knew that would happen. She knew we'd be late for our reservations and all of that. So I said, all right, babe, I'll tell you what. I've got to run by. I'll get something out of the sanctuary. And why don't you go in with me, and then you can pull me right back out. What she didn't know is that I had planned um, a second wedding for us. And so I brought in her wedding party. I brought in my wedding party. My brother was there. My dad was there. Her family was there. Um, a bunch of my like family, church family and friends from Beach United Methodist Church all showed up. I was the youth pastor there. So I said, all right, kids, we've got a youth event. Be in the sanctuary and just be there. All right? And they, you know, they all just show up. So we walk in the door, and everybody's like, surprise! And she, she kind of, she's like, it's not my birthday. What are we doing here? She sees her mom and dad, sees my parents, whatever. And so I just got down on my knee, and I said, I said, I said will you marry me some more? That's what I said. <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. Not exactly a poet. All right, so that's what I said. She said, yes, praise the Lord, because it could have been really awkward if she said, I don't know. Didn't mean anything to talk. But she did. She said, yes. And so her girls, her friends, her girls took her and, and me and the groomsmen, you know, we hung out and, and we, did our, we did our rehearsal and then we went to a rehearsal dinner at uh, Angie Subs. And then after that, <laughs> she went her way, I went my way. And then that next day we met back up at the church and hundreds of people, all of our students and all of our volunteers, they all showed up. And then um, we just did the whole wedding over again. And you know how awesome it is as a married person to get married to your wife again? Because there's no pressure, there's no stress. Um, we spent no money, none. Zero on flowers. You know that, zero. And it was, it was so awesome. And then I told all the guys, you don't have to rent a tux, just tuck your shirt in, it'll be fine. I told all the girls, don't, you don't have to dress up like Easter eggs, just pick a dress that you like and, and wear it. And, you know, Gretchen works it out so she can still wear her wedding dress, so that, that's a plus. And then, so we, we all get there. And then Pastor Jerry Sweat um, renewed our vows. That's why... By the way, when, I, when Pastor Jerry shows up around here and we all standing ovation to Pastor Jerry, it's because he's my pastor. 
And if I'm your pastor and he's my pastor, then he's like your grand pastor, okay? And so when grand pastor walks in, we give him a standing O. And so five years in, we were able to share, exchange vows for the first time, say them out loud, because we had to skip that part in, in our first marriage. And then we got to go to a reception, and it was like a real reception, you know, like a Song of Solomon, spice wine kind of reception at a friend's house. And, and we got to do our first dance five years in and cut the cake and do the little garter thing, you know. Even five years in, there was no mystery, but it was still awesome to do the little and shoot the thing and throw the bouquet and all of that. It was awesome, awesome, awesome. Because fundamentally, I just wanted her to know that till death do us part was not just a goal somewhere out there, but it was actually the foundation on which we were building our marriage. And that I wanted to renew. Say, hey, five years in, babe, I'm more committed, I'm more sure now that I want to spend the rest of my days with you than even five years ago when we got married. And so, till death do us part, it begins with doing our part until we're dead. That's, what, that's where it begins. And then it becomes the foundation. Now, in our, in our time remaining, I, wanted to, um, I just wanted to talk about something that's kind of, it can be like the elephant in the room if you've been a part of this series. I mean, I've been talking about my marriage, but it's the only one I have. Uh, so what else am I going to talk about? But I know some of you are like, Pastor Joby, that is great. God bless you and your marriage. That is not my story. I mean, I'm glad you and Gretchen are happy and and the last seven weeks have been great and all of that. Awesome. Praise God. But that has not been my story. I know that there are a bunch of you in this room and you're divorced. Some of you are divorced and remarried. Some of you are still married, but you're hanging on by a thread. Some of you have been cheated on and you're trying to rebuild it. Some of you have been cheated on and you're trying to figure out if you're going to rebuild it. Some of you have been abandoned and left. Some of you got married and you weren't believers, and now one of you has become a believer, and that's jacked your whole marriage up, and you don't know what to do. And so what do you do if it's not the kind of story like me? Well, even though I just got to warn you here, I hope you'll hear my heart. I hope you'll understand that I love you more than you know. And there are some parts of the Bible that particularly talk about divorce and remarriage that are super uncomfortable. And, by the way, um, in growing churches like ours... Pastors like me are counseled to never talk about this kind of stuff because it's so offensive. And I'm just warning you now, it's so offensive. And when we, talk, when we look at what Jesus says, he's going to be even more offensive. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writes a big chunk of the Bible to this church in Corinth because they were asking the same questions. Hey, when can we get divorced? And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.10. He says, to the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He wants to make sure everybody knows this is God speaking, not just Paul's opinion. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So the default position in the scripture is stay married. For the rest of the chapter, he's going to go on to explain some specific situations. Because what we're going to see in just a little while is Jesus has the audacity to say that if you get divorced, except for sexual immorality, and you get remarried, then you've committed adultery. And you think, what? So does that mean if I'm divorced and remarried, I've committed adultery? Does that mean I needed, am I living in perpetual sin and need to divorce my second or third spouse? And Paul's going to handle this directly and go, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're not living in perpetual sin. 
wherever you find yourself in this current state and you are surrendered unto Jesus, then you take that current marriage and you make it as God-glorifying as you can by being mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ, husbands loving your wife like Christ loved the church, and wife submitted to your husband as unto the Lord. But he, he says here, he says, you stay married. So I'm going to warn you, if you come to me and your marriage is in trouble, we're going to fight to save your marriage. I don't care what's happened, okay? We're going to fight. And you're not going to like me. I'm telling you, you're not going to like me. And there, you, Actually, we could line up a whole bunch of people that have been with me for the past few years. They like me again now. Because now they're like, oh, gosh, I see what you were doing. You were exhausting all possibilities of reconciliation, absolutely. But, but we are a church that's going to fight for marriages no matter what. And so with that, the question then is, so when is it okay to get divorced? All right? The Bible does make a case for a few instances where you can get divorced. First and foremost, I would say this. If you're being abused or your children are being abused, you get out. You get out. You get out. It doesn't even necessarily mean divorce, but you get to a safe distance. And from a safe distance, you begin to work on healing somebody that is broken and then possibly reconciliation. This is not necessarily the best context to talk to you about if, if you are being abused. And so if you are, then when this service is over, you find a pastor or an elder in this church and we will help you. We will do whatever it takes to help you and make sure you and your children are safe. So that's one. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 7, <clears throat> Paul says that if you are married to an unbelieving spouse and they leave you, then you pursue them and you try to reconcile it, but at some point, if they're not willing to play along, then at some point you got to let it go. Now, the default is, is that you try to do everything that you can to stay married to even that unbelieving spouse. And the reason is because, what we've been talking about earlier, that you are a sanctifying agent in your marriage. And that you, the way you love them unconditionally, and the way you pour out mercy and grace, is an example of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. And so I know a lot of you, it's mostly wives, I know a lot of you, you love Jesus, and then your husband, he's not even here with you right now. So what the, what the Word says for you to do is that you submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And you say, well, he's not submittable to. I know. That's why you submit to him as unto the Lord. And the more you attend this church, the better wife you become. And you go, that's not fair. Absolutely. There's nothing fair about the gospel. We don't want fair. I promise. If it's fair, none of us are here. All right? The whole Walmart's just a big greasy spot here at Beach of San Pablo, and we're out because we don't want fair. And so, and the more you love him unconditionally, the more, um, uh, it's, through, it's through God's kindness that draws us to repentance. That's your best hope. But if, if an unbelieving spouse leaves you and you can't chase them down, then at some point you let them go. And then lastly, it's this one. It's infidelity. It's infidelity. Now, Jesus handles this one directly on two different occasions. And essentially what he's going to say is, you should not get divorced. And then he has an accept. Now, I don't know if you've read a lot of material from Jesus. There's not a lot of accept when Jesus talks. You ever notice this? So this is an arena where Jesus says, now here is an exception. Like, here's the rule, and the rule is, don't get divorced. And then he says, but here's an exception. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. 
He says, it was also said, this is in Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here's what that means. Um, back in the Old Testament, men could just divorce women for whatever reason they wanted to. A woman could not divorce a man, but a man could divorce his wife for any reason. And again, it was awful sociologically. It was terrible. It was sinful and abusive against women. And so a divorced woman had no place in society. And so a man could divorce his wife for burning the toast twice. Some of you, you'd be done, all right? And so all I'd have to say is, you burn the toast, you're out. And then she's, she's a widow. She's homeless. She can't fend for herself. So Moses comes along to protect women in that time and say, Husbands, if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to write her a certificate of divorce so you make her legal in our society so that she can go, See, I'm not just messing around my, on my husband. This was his idea. This is not my idea. So that she could get a job, those kinds of things. All right? And so... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, okay, so you heard about that. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus gives this exception. Basically what he's saying is if you've been cheated on, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad that it fractures the covenant of marriage. It's the only thing that can fracture it. And that you get a pass and can get remarried. And that's why when I teach on sexual immorality, I mean, I read it out of 1 Corinthians 6. You know what I say? Flee. Run away from. Do whatever it takes. Jesus says, gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. You do whatever it takes to flee sexual immorality because he who sins sexually sins against his own body. All the other sins are in the same category and sexual sin is in a different category because it hurts you at the soul level. It's such a big deal. It could actually fracture the covenant that you got married in. Now, some of you look at that and you, and you hear this part that, that uh, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you go, are you saying I committed adultery? Maybe. If, if that's the category you fall into. And then some of you at 11.22, you'd say, well, well what do I do? What do I do if I've committed adultery? You know what I would tell you? You join the crowd. Because guess what Jesus says about um, those who lust after a woman with their eyes? He says, he says, if you lust after a woman with your eyes, then you have already committed adultery. So if you're divorced and remarried, or if you're divorced and it's your fault, or you just straight up committed adultery, are you welcome here at the church of 1122? Well, based on what Jesus said about lust equals adultery, not only are you welcome, you could be in charge of the whole place. You understand? Yeah, you are totally and completely welcome and received in this place. Now, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 19, some Pharisees come to him, and they're trying to trap him by asking him questions, and they ask him this question that is pertinent today. In Matthew 19, 3, they say, Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? And then what Jesus does is he takes them back to the original marriage between Adam and Eve, and he tells them this. He says, he says, all right, there was one man and there was one woman, and therefore a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh. And then he says this in 19.6. He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus essentially is saying, as you're asking, is it permissible to get divorced? And then Jesus is saying, I, I don't even think it's possible. I don't think you can get into the fire, into the frying pan and unscramble the eggs. 
Because now it's not a yoke and a white, but it's all become one thing except for sexual immorality. That's the only thing that, that is such a big deal that it breaks that covenant. And then he's going to say the same thing in, in verse 9 that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. Again, do you see how big a deal that is? Except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And then here's what the disciples say. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replies, right, not everyone can receive this saying. And then, if you just look in your Bible, and then he just goes and starts playing with some children. He just leaves them. Come on, kids, play dodgeball. And the disciples are like, wait up, man, hold on, time out. How are you going to just drop that on us and then run play with the kids? I mean, Matthew's over here crying. Peter's about to pull his eHarmony account down. I mean, what, what are we doing? Can we or can't we? I mean, I don't understand. So essentially, if you begin to look at this and think, wow, this is like forever. If I stand at an altar and I make a vow, it really is till death do its part, right. So you mean I can't like try one out and then trade in and get another one? Mm-mm. Now, what if, what if I didn't know that then, but that's, that's my history. In 1 Corinthians 7, great. If you've been married 37 times, there's not going to be a 38th, okay? And where you find yourself now, then you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. And also, if you're married and you've been cheated on and they broke that covenant and your spouse has committed sexual immorality, then the default position of the Bible, the default position of God is this, is that you pursue reconciliation. Yeah, it's not automatic. Is it hard? I can't even imagine. Now, I've walked along some people that I love very, very, very dearly and tried to go get a wayward wife, tried to go get a wayward husband, okay? So I've walked next to people that have gone through that. I've never had to personally experience that. But the default position of the scriptures is you do everything within your power to reconcile with the spouse that hurt you so bad. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. And you go, but Jesus, she cheated on me. And he goes, I know, and you cheated on me. But I didn't divorce you. I pursued reconciliation. Now, if you're trying to reconcile and they won't have it, then you've got to let them go. But if they are willing to repent, to confess, and to... to love you like Christ loved the church and be submitted to you as unto the Lord, then you pursue reconciliation. That is, that's, that's what the Bible says. Is that easy? Uh-uh. But neither was the cross. I want to point it out in an Old Testament book called Hosea. And don't even try to look it up, all right? I had to mark mine with a paper clip because I couldn't find it on Thursday and it was embarrassing. I'm a professional Christian and have been to seminary, okay? So... It's only like six pages long. So Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. Catch this, okay? He's a prophet in the Old Testament. That means in our context, he's like a professional preacher. That God speaks to him. And he's not like a preacher like me. Like I have to go into the woods and like write a sermon. God would just give them to him and he would retweet them. That's how prophets in the Old Testament work. Just straight from God to the people, right? That's what it was. And so in Hosea chapter 1, God comes to Hosea and he says this out loud. says when the Lord first spoke. Through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I just really wanted to say the word three times, but listen. So he does, and he goes and he marries a whore, and her name is Gomer. 
So that should have been a clue. This ain't going well. All right? So listen, if you're pregnant with a little girl, don't name her Gomer, all right? Because it, it ain't going to go well. And then they have two kids, and their two kids' names, they name one No Mercy, and they name the second one You're Not My Kid. That's what they name their children. Hey, this is No Mercy, and that one ain't mine. Well, whose is it? No, that's her name. That's what we named him. All right, it's not going well. So then, after the preacher marries a prostitute, then guess what? She does what she does. She abandons him. She cheats on him. She's unfaithful. She sleeps not with just one man, but many, many, many men. And if you pick it up in Hosea chapter 3, this is what God says to the prophet, the guy that didn't do anything wrong, nothing wrong. Here's what he says, God says to Hosea in Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. To which you know Hosea is like, do what? Nah, I ain't going to get Gomer. I was going to go get a lawyer, Right? Because I ain't, she ain't taking my stuff, and I ain't paying for no mercy, and I ain't my kid. All right, I ain't doing this. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, I know we giggle, but for some of you, this is as real as your front teeth right now. But you've been cheated on. And God says to him, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. It's a picture of the gospel. So you go, but God, this ain't fair. He's like, I know. It wasn't fair for me to die on a cross for your sins either. Yeah, but God, I deserve better. Oh, I know. I deserve to be worshipped and praised by all created things, and yet you slapped my face when you turned your back on me. And I didn't divorce you. I pursued you. Yeah, but God, I don't feel like doing it. Jesus was sweating blood saying, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He didn't really feel like going to Calvary for us either. But he did because love is an action and not a feeling. And so God says, just like I loved Israel, I want you to love your wife, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That means we sleep around on God. That's what that means. That if you've ever been cheated on, you know how God feels when we betray him. And this is crazy. In verse 2, here's what Hosea, the man of God, does. So I, so Hosea, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. That just means a bunch of money in barley. And he bought her on the prostitution trading block. He walks into a room where she's been cheating on him with the men in the room. And, she said, and he says, I will overpay for her with everything I have. That's what he does. It's a picture of what Christ does on the cross. And then listen to what he says to her. Verse 3, he says, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, and you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's saying to her, This is huge. This is huge. She thinks she's a whore. And he says to her, You shall not play the whore. He doesn't call her a whore. In fact, he says, You're not, and you're not going to act that way anymore. Because that's not who you are. Because who you are, you're mine. And the reason you're mine is because I just bought you with everything I have. And here's the truth, folks. The only one that has the right to tell you who you are is the one that bought you and paid for you. And so, listen, you are not your divorce. You are not your affair. You are not your temptation. You are not the things that you used to do. Because if you're in Christ, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 
that when Christ died on the cross, he did so, and he paid a whole lot more than 15 shekels and a bunch of barley. He paid with his only begotten son to purchase you, and so you are not defined by the things of this world. You're not defined by your temptation. You're not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your marital status. You are not your divorce. You are not your adultery. You are not your sin. You are not a victim, okay? I'm not saying you're not, you haven't been victimized and that you haven't been abused, but that does not claim who you are. Because when Christ died on the cross, he took out your heart of stone. And if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, he put his heart in you. And the righteousness of Christ has been imputed unto you. And so when God sees you, he does not see your temptation, your feelings, your emotion. He doesn't see that. He sees the shed righteous blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's why Romans 8 one says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at the church of 1122, regardless of your past, regardless of your sin, regardless of your adultery, your affair, whatever it is, regardless of what it is, you don't get to walk around with your head held low anymore. Why? Because you, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, you're a son or you're a daughter of the King, the most high God. And Christ paid the full price for you on the cross. And when the full price has been paid, you don't owe anything anymore. And he's got a hope for you. He's got a plan for you. And he's got a future for you. And his future is found not in your emotions, not in your temptation, not in your past. But his future is founded in his shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That God demonstrated his love for you. I mean, for you. And he demonstrated his love for you and for you in this. That even though you'd screwed up, the Bible wouldn't say it that way. It would say, even while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if you're in a marriage right now and it's going great, praise God. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. If you're in a marriage right now and it's barely hanging on by a thread, you know why there's hope? Because Jesus is alive. Not because you're going to act better, but because Jesus is alive. And as long as Jesus resurrected from that grave and he sits on the right-hand throne of God the Father, then there's hope for your marriage. We are in the miracle business. you understand? And if you're divorced and you feel like you tried to do everything you could do to reconcile, there's hope for you. And if you're divorced and it was 100% your fault, there's hope for you in Christ And if you're divorced and remarried and you're getting this information for the very first time and you're thinking, oh no, what do we do? Then you hold your head high and you walk in the name of Jesus because this world does not have the right to tell you who you are, but only the one that bought you and paid for you. And his name is Jesus and he calls you my beloved. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much that when we cheated on you, when we sinned against you, when we turned our back on you, God, you didn't divorce us. You pursued us. You paid the price. It wasn't even your fault. You never sinned, and yet you paid the whole bill for our sin. And you drew us unto yourself, and you forgive us, God. God, I pray for marriages at this church that are strong. God, may we continuously keep our eyes fixed on you. God, I pray for second marriages and third and fourth and fifth, but there won't be another one. That from this day forward, God, those couples would be mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for you. God, I pray for the couples right now that have infidelity in their past. God, I pray that just like you put death in the grave, that you would put that sin in the grave. And it's not to be paid for anymore because you paid the full price on the cross. God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that with Jesus, all things are possible. 
God, to the broken and the hurting and the abused in this place. God, for the, um, God, for the widow, even though their husband or ex-husband might be alive, but they have left them as a widow. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would surround them. I pray that this church would be their family, that they would find healing and wholeness and rest and peace in this place. And God, no matter what our condition, I pray that we would receive your invitation. And we wouldn't chase after peace, but we'd chase after you, because in you we can find peace. God, I pray that you would do miracles in this place. Miracles in this place. And I pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, we respond to the gospel here because it's real. We respond by singing. We're going to sing a love song to God. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, if you're a regular here, to the giving boxes around the side or the giving kiosk in the back. And we respond by coming to the altar and casting all our cares on Him because He cares for us. Let us respond.